Like many of you, I imagine, I uh, made some New Year's resolutions this year. I've heard that every year that passes, fewer people, fewer Americans make New Year's resolutions. And maybe we're learning that every time we make them, we fail. And so we think it's better to not try than to try and fail. Um, I hope that you make resolutions. I hope you don't just make New Year's resolutions. I hope that all the time you're uh, reflecting on your life and where you've been, where you're headed, and that you make adjustments along the way. I make New Year's resolutions just about every year. One of mine this year was to get back in shape. Anyone else make that resolution? Get back in shape, man. I want to feel good again. You know, I've gotten a little soft lately. I've gotten lazy, and I want to, I want to look good. I want to feel good. You know, I, I want to be confident. I want to be able to walk up the stairs without like, having to t- take a breather afterwards. I, you know, and I, I used to be an athlete. I know it's hard to believe, but I used to be an athlete, like a really good one, like, sort of good one. <laughs> I played basketball like 30 hours a week in high school, constantly played basketball. I got scholarship offers for academics and choir. But the, um, it's not a lie to say that I played basketball and I got scholarship offers, is it? Technically? But I, I, was, I, I, had, I just had a motor that wouldn't quit. You know, I was, I was always Mr. Hustle. And, and lately, I just feel like I've, I've kind of let, let off a little bit, you know, let off the gas pedal. I've, I've kind of gotten lazy. And so I thought, I, I want to get back into it. I, want, I went out and got some equipment, and I, you know, scheduled some basketball games. And I played my first full-court basketball game in, like, seven or eight months um, on Friday. And I am still in desperate pain. Uh, it was ugly. It felt ugly. Uh, it, I was so, so winded. You know that feeling where you're not sure you'll ever breathe again? That was the feeling I had from like 10 to noon on Friday morning. I mean, these guys, they just kind of mopped the floor with me. I only scored when they let me. The worst part is that there was a bunch of preachers. I was playing pastors. <laughs> and getting killed and you know half the time I didn't even make it down the court I'm just like you guys you guys go I'll be here when you get back like just handle it you know and I was kind of a defensive liability you know for that reason and it was it was demoralizing you know it was worse than just not playing well but not physically being able to play like you want to play is so discouraging when you're used to being good or at least being able to run with the guys you're playing with. It was one of those moments, right? But then, as I sat and thought about it, I was thinking, you know, I'm living a truth that I've watched people live over and over again as a pastor. I'm living a truth I've lived over and over again. Right now, with this basketball game and in the aftermath of it, I'm living one of those universal human truths, and that is this. Just because you want to start a new chapter doesn't mean the old chapter necessarily ends. Just because you turn the page doesn't mean all the stuff from your old life is going to follow you into your new life. So the question I've been wrestling with this week as we're getting ready to to tackle this topic today is, is it really even possible to start a brand new chapter in your life when all the consequences and things from your old life are following you and are persistent in in, in their following you and haunting you, right? So, uh, you know, I wanted to get in shape, but I couldn't start that process with the body I had the last time I was in shape, right? So I couldn't start this renewal 
with the body I had 10 years ago or five years ago, or with the body I had last January, the last time I promised I was going to get in shape. Um, I couldn't start with that body even, even, you know. I got to start with this body, and there's issues abounding with this body. And most of them can be attributed to some awful decisions that I've made over the past several years, most of which go back to queso and... Have you had cronuts? Anyone had cronuts? You think donuts are bad for you? Eating one cronut is eating like a half dozen donuts. If you haven't had it, I highly recommend it. Your pastor tells you to go and have a cronut, but just run like 50 miles after because that's what it takes to burn off the calories from a cronut. And your kolaches in Houston and every, the, the food is everywhere. And I have made so many bad decisions. And just because I make one good decision to right all those wrongs doesn't mean the consequences of those bad decisions don't follow me into this new chapter. You know what I'm saying? So you, you've experienced this kind of thing before, right? Where you want to start a new life, but all the stuff from your old life is still there. And so how do you really have a new beginning when that's done? It's not going to let go of you. You don't get a free pass. Jesus never promised to wipe away your consequences. He wipes away your sins, but we still have to live with the consequences. That creates an extra challenge. And so when I'm trying to get in shape now, I'm not just trying to take a step forward. I have to make up for all the steps backward that I took, which makes the journey even more difficult. Some of you might be experiencing this same kind of thing. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Last week when we talked about, you know, starting a new beginning, a new chapter, we discussed the sins of your family that's a different topic, right? So the sins you inherit or the tendencies, the coping mechanisms, the habits that you inherited from your family that you can trace back through your family tree, all that stuff is really important. Today, we're going to ask a little bit of a different question. I'm going to ask you about how you're starting a new chapter in light of the bad decisions you've made in your own past and the consequences of your own mistakes. So we looked at the family stuff last week through Matthew chapter 1 and his lens of Jesus' family tree, which Matthew gives us. He opens his gospel with this awesome genealogy of Jesus. And what I want you to know is that genealogies in the Bible, and there are many, as you probably noticed, especially in the Old Testament, they are always about advertising. They are marketing tools. They are promotion materials. When your genealogy was listed in scripture, it was to promote you and to say, look what good pedigree this person comes from. Look what a great stock this person comes from. And, and that's, Matthew begins with a genealogy. And so he's advertising who Jesus is. He's advertising the nature of the son of God. And he gives us this genealogy. We talked about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, and their family messes last week. This week, I want to look at that second question about your own past through the lens of four other people Matthew mentions in his genealogy of Jesus. And it's shocking. If you look at it in Matthew 1, it's absolutely shocking if you know anything about the Bible at all. Because genealogies make up a good portion of the Old Testament. There seem to be thousands of pages of so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Y'all have seen this stuff, right? But if you thumb through the book of Numbers or any other book really in the Old Testament just about through those genealogies, you will see that Old Testament, Bible time, family trees are exclusively a boys club. Only the men are mentioned. Only the men are given credit, which doesn't make any sense to us today, and I hate that it's that way. That's just the way the world was then. 
And only the men are listed in genealogies, except in this one genealogy in Matthew's gospel. So Matthew's genealogy looks just like every other genealogy except for these four women that he lifts up. It's, it's extraordinary. And we really have to look at the four women Matthew lifts up and ask ourselves, what is Matthew advertising about Jesus? What is Matthew promoting about this Messiah by lifting up women, but especially these four women? Because there were more than four women in Jesus's real family tree, right? We're all clear on that. There had to have been at least as many women as men, right? Y'all been in biology class, okay? But he mentions four. So why these four? And what's he saying about these four? So we've got Tamar, we've got Rahab, we've got Ruth, and we've got Bathsheba, who's not mentioned by name. She's called the wife of Uriah, um, the soldier Uriah. We'll get there in a second. So I'm going to go through these. I'm going to fly through their stories. You have to keep up with me. I don't want them to get your wires crossed in your head. I'm going to tell four different stories real quick. All right, so grab your study guides if it helps. I left a lot of space to write about this question. Um, <clears throat> so we're talking about Tamar first. Tamar, her story is found in Genesis 38. She is called the mother of Judah's children. Judah is the guy that we talked about last week. Um, and, uh, and, and Tamar was the mother of his two sons, which sounds innocent enough until you read Genesis 38 and you realize that Tamar was not Judah's wife. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law which should garner a collective from the congregation today. Tamar had her father-in-law's children. And it gets even more twisted than that, believe it or not. This is how it happens. Tamar marries Judah's son, and he dies soon after their wedding, leaving Tamar a widow. And uh, the life of a widow was uncertain and frightening, frankly, in those times. Widows, more often than not, ended up on the streets begging for money and food and doing God knows what else on the streets to just get by. They had no security. That was the future that awaited Tamar unless something happened. And fortunately for her, there was one social safety net. There was one sort of layer of social security that was supposed to kick in to save Tamar from a life on the streets. And she's young, so she's looking at a long life on the streets. But what's supposed to happen was that her dead husband's younger brother was supposed to take her in as his wife and shelter her for the rest of her life, take care of her, and give her children, which should probably garner another collective from some of you women who think about your brothers-in-law. However, it was a different world back then. And just work with me, right? This was the only way that women could uh, protect themselves. Children were security. <laughs> Wives are whispering to their husbands. I can see it. You guys are like, oh, dude, really? Oh, man. But that's what, that's the way it's supposed to work. Here's what happened, though. Judah didn't want to give Tamar to uh, the dead son's younger brother. Judah told her that he was too young to get married. She should go back and live with her father until her, his younger son, Shelah, is of age. And when he becomes a man, uh, Judah promised Tamar that he would give her in marriage to Shelah. So Tamar does what she's told, and she goes home to her father's house, and she sits by the phone, but never rings. And days become weeks, become months, become years. And, Ju- and Tamar is left to wonder, has Judah forgotten? Did Judah lie? Am I going to be a widow for the rest of my life? What happens when my dad dies and leaves me alone? What kind of life will I have then? And she gets desperate. And then one day she hears that her father-in-law is in town. They lived in different towns, and Judah comes into town, and somebody tells her that Judah's coming into town, and there's a man with him. A young man. And so Tamar is curious. Why hasn't he come to see me? So she takes off her mourning clothes, which she had not like 
wake up in the morning, not pajamas, like clothes of mourning with a U, right? Sadness clothes, takes them off, puts on a, an outfit like a costume. She gets in disguise and she goes out into the street to find Judah. And she finds him there and she sees him walking there and she recognizes the young man that's with him. It's Shelah. The boy was promised to her, has become a man, becomes clear to her that Judah has lied and reneged on his promise, that her future is dark. And it all flashes before her eyes as she stands there on the streets looking at Judah. Judah looks back at her and doesn't recognize her. He doesn't know who she is because she has her face covered, but he sees her there walking the streets alone and assumes that she is of the world's oldest profession. And he walks up to her and propositions her. And in a moment of quick thinking, I guess, Tamar just goes along with it. And Judah, you remember the, my favorite euphemism from like months and months ago? Only the, the old timers here at the story will remember this. Um, to protect the innocence of children's ears, we call certain things coloring. Y'all remember coloring? Can I get an amen on color? It's, it's from my favorite HBO show, Coloring in the City. Y'all with me? Are we good? <laughs> Judah, Judah colors. Judah and Tamar color. Judah colors with Tamar for money. Judah colors. Right? And, and Tamar gets pregnant and has twins. And that's how Tamar sort of elbows her way into Jesus' family tree. Okay? That's the first story. So what is Matthew telling us by including her and none of the other women about Jesus? Secondly, we've got Rahab. Rahab is found in the book of Joshua. Rahab is the heroine who made possible the, Isra the Israelites conquer of Jericho. Rahab is the reason why you have that song stuck in your heads now, and you're going to have it stuck in your heads the rest of the day. She is the reason why Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Joshua and them, they get all the credit. It was Rahab who's the reason why. Rahab was on the inside of Jericho. She was not part of the Israelite people. Rahab never had to dress up and pretend to be a prostitute like Tamar did because Rahab was actually a prostitute. That's really who she was, day in and day out. I want you to think about the life of someone like Rahab. And it occurs to me that our city is full of people like Rahab. Women then and most women now do not choose that life. It's a career choice. Something has gone dramatically wrong. Someone has failed her. Someone has not protected her. Someone has not provided for her. Some injustice has fallen on her. And she has ended up doing what she has to do every day. And the same is true for just about everyone, every woman, young girl, that ends up in that profession. And you might be tempted to think, as the good Christians that you are, that someone like Rahab, who does what she does every day, with who knows how many people every day and every night, is so far from God. She must be so distant from God because she's dirty. She's compromised. She's not one of us at the church. She's not like us. We're not like her. But you'd be wrong. Because God doesn't see what men see. 
Men looked at Rahab and saw someone to be used and disposed of at will. God looks at Rahab and sees all of her circumstances, all the people that have wronged her and abused her and let her down, the people that should have loved her and protected her. God sees all of that and takes it into account. And God says, this one is my daughter, and I'm going to make her part of the greatest story ever told. I'm going to make her the great-great-great-grandmother of the Savior of the world, Rahab. That's exactly what happened. The third woman that's mentioned in Jesus's genealogy is Ruth. Ruth's story is so incredible, she gets her own book. Right after the book, it goes Joshua, and then Judges, and then Ruth. I hope you read it sometime. I hope you have a, time, a chance to study it. It's an incredible story about an incredible woman. Ruth is a foreigner. She's from Moab, a different country. So her skin is a different color. She speaks a different language. She has a different culture. But a similar thing happens to Ruth that happened to Tamar. So Ruth gets married to an Israelite um, family, and she marries into this Israelite family, and her husband dies soon after the wedding, leaving her again a widow. Not only is Ruth a widow in the story, but her mother-in-law, Naomi, so her dead husband's mom, has also been recently widowed. So it's just the two of them. The only thing worse than being a widow 3,000 years ago was being a widow and living alone with your mother-in-law 3,000 years ago. Can I get an amen from the congregation? Can you imagine the fights about Tupperware or whatever? (laughs) That was sexist. I'm sorry. Dang it. Dang it. Just can't help it. So, So Naomi, the mother-in-law, says to Ruth, she says, I'm old. All I have to do is die. And all I want to do is go back to my hometown. I'm going to walk through the desert, go back to my hometown. Hopefully I'll make it through the desert and die where I was born. That's all that I'm going to do. So she's depressed. She says to Ruth, she says, you're young. People in your hometown might not even know that you ever got married. Go home. There is a chance for you to rebuild your life. Go live with your dad and, and put your life back together. But uh, Ruth says to Naomi, a phrase you probably heard a lot at weddings, and you probably thought it was this great romantic thing that a man said to a woman once, but it was really a young girl saying it to her mother-in-law, and she said, do not press me to leave you or keep me from following you. I'm going where you're going. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried there with you. And Ruth is faithful to Naomi for no real good reason other than the fact that Ruth could not let this old, depressed woman walk off into the desert alone. And so she committed to walking with her and being with her through the desert. They almost died together in the desert, and they finally make it to Naomi's hometown. When they get to Naomi's hometown, there's nothing left for them there either. They are penniless. They're broke. Naomi is too depressed and despondent and bitter to get up and do anything about their situation. So it's Ruth who leaves the house and goes out into the city to beg for food. Ruth goes out to find food for her and Naomi. And she's out there begging for food. And you got to think that while she's out there, completely broke, probably dying of hunger and thirst, out there begging in poverty, you got to think, Ruth thought to herself, like, does no good deed go unpunished? You know, like, have you ever, like, Ruth did the right thing, right? And she still faces these consequences for making the right choice, That ever happened to you? Like you make the right choice, you do the right thing. And bad stuff still won't stop happening. It's got to be Ruth's frame of mind as she's out begging in the fields for food. 
And then she meets a boy. Ruth meets a boy named Boaz. Boaz sees her begging in the fields. He's immediately taken with her. He asks his friends, who's that girl over there? Boaz is the son of Rahab, prostitute in Jericho. Maybe his mama taught him something about respecting a woman who's down and out. And he went to her and he saw her in her despair and he gave her seven days worth of food. Boaz said to Ruth, come back when you're hungry again and I'll give you more. Ruth didn't wait seven days until she ran out of food. Ruth went back to Boaz's house that night. She snuck into Boaz's house that night. She snuck into Boaz's bedroom that night. And they colored. (laughs) And Ruth must have been like a really good artist or something. (laughs) Or this was like her masterpiece. (laughs) Because the first thing in the morning, Boaz said, will you marry me? This is not me talking. This is the Bible. Y'all didn't know it's in the Bible, did you? There was some, some amazing coloring going on that night. And, uh, and, and Boaz takes Ruth as his wife. And that's how Ruth winds up in the world's most important family tree. The fourth and uh, final woman listed in Jesus' uh, genealogy was Bathsheba. We've talked a lot about Bathsheba and her encounter with David and what happened with her husband, Uriah the soldier. If you're new here, I'm sorry, but we've talked about Bathsheba twice in the last six weeks. I'm not going to go back through it. You just need to know that it was another story full of lies and scandal and coloring and all the other stuff that's in all the other stories. The same thing happened with Bathsheba, and she suffered the same pain of her past because she carried that baggage forward with her, even as her circumstances changed, the consequences of her past did not. And so all four of these women were chased by their past in uh, different kinds of ways. All four of these women suffered consequences from their past, but for different reasons. People are always like, why do bad things happen to me? Why do bad things happen to people? Or why do they happen to good people? Why did terrible things happen to these four women? That's for different reasons, right? You can't just point one finger Uh, Tamar suffered because somebody did her wrong. Some of you have suffered because somebody did you wrong. You know, Rahab suffered because the world is unfair, and some girls are loved by the people that should love them, and they grew up to be princesses, and other girls aren't, and they grew up to be prostitutes, and it's unfair, and it breaks my heart, it breaks God's heart, and that's the way the world is right now. And that's why Rahab suffers. Ruth uh, suffers, you know, because it seems like no good deed goes unpunished sometimes, and Bathsheba suffers because of lust and ambition, either hers or David's or both of theirs. Um, Scholars disagree exactly who's to blame there, but she suffered because of bad decisions. I told a little bit of a lie earlier when I said that there's only four women listed in Jesus' family tree. Obviously, there are five. Who's the fifth? 
Mary, obviously, Jesus' mother, is also listed uh, as, uh, as, as a contributor, you might say, to Jesus' life and to the gospel story. What I want you to see is that Mary's struggle fits in with the other four women. She's also chased by her past constantly. I've told you through Christmas, uh, the Christmas Eve service and the service before that, that Mary was chased by her past. She was always fending off rumors and accusations about the real father of Jesus and who he was. This is history. You know, this is documented stuff. There were real rumors flying around about Jesus's real daddy. Mary fought that off her whole life. Mary was there when she saw her baby dying on a cross, the most agonizing death. Yeah, he came back and all that was great, but you know, I've got to think that image haunted her as a mother standing just inches from her baby dying that way. Now, why did Mary struggle with her past? Why did she suffer as her past chased her? Well, that's a whole different thing. She struggled because she, when the angel came to her bedroom and she was 14 and said, Mary, do not be afraid. She was like, I'm not afraid. Let's do this. And she answered the call to God. She said yes to God and her life got harder, not easier, which is just what happens sometimes when you say yes to God. Just because you say yes to God doesn't mean your life won't be scandalous. In fact, it should be in some ways. Each one of these women were walking scandals. And so I just want you to, I want you to see this. Matthew lists these five women for a reason. It's not an accident. And he promotes Jesus to the world in this way. I want you to think, wouldn't Jesus have been a more legitimate Messiah if he had a less illegitimate family tree? Wouldn't it have been a better way to promote Jesus by leaving out some of that stuff and not going out of your way to lift up Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba? You know, wouldn't it have been better, um, you know, to promote him, uh, Jesus, in, in that way? Think about the, the, the four, or really the five women Matthew chooses to promote Jesus with. You've got a fake prostitute, an actual prostitute. You've got, uh, you know, the foreign hungry artist girl, and you've got, you know, uh, the lady that took a bath on her roof, and, you know, you've got the unwed pregnant teenage runaway Mary. And so why these women? Why not somebody better? The answer is that our God doesn't run from the scandal. Our God runs toward the scandal. Our God redeems the scandal. There's no mess you can make that's too big for our God to help you clean up. There's no mess you can make that our God will ever be ashamed of or that our God will ever hide his face from. In fact, your worst moment is where God is at his best. God takes delight in helping you out of your darkest moment and your worst scandal. Maybe that's why Jesus came to the world this way, to show the world that there's a way out of your worst moments because he's been where you are. There's a story I want to share with you real quick from the New Testament, from John chapter 4. You can open your Bibles with me if you want um, to John chapter 4 and follow along with me. Um, If you didn't have your Bible with you today, um, you can use your study guides. You can also let us give you a Bible on the way out of worship today if you don't have one. We'd love to gift you with one. John chapter 4, Jesus goes to Samaria. This was kind of enemy territory. The Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And Jesus goes there to make disciples. Again, Jesus runs toward the scandal and not away from it, toward the controversy, 
and not away from it. And he's there in uh, Samaria. It is the middle of the day. It's scorching hot. Jesus sits down at a well that his ancestor Jacob built a thousand years before. Same well. Jesus sits there in the middle of the day, and a woman approaches. She's come to fetch water for her family, which is weird because women didn't fetch water in the middle of the day. Women fetched water the first thing in the morning when it was a little bit cooler and it was a social opportunity for the other women and they would sit and they would talk about stuff and they would gossip and they would catch up on community news and all that. It was community, it was friend building. A lot of these women might have been related to each other. It was a good chance to catch up. But this woman didn't come in the morning to fetch water for her family. She came in the middle of the day in the scorching hot sun. And while she's there, Jesus says, give me a drink of water. He talks to her. In talking to this woman, he breaks like three biblical laws, like in a half a second. He goes out of his way and breaks biblical rules to talk to this woman. And he tells her about this kind of water he knows of that you just have to drink once and you never have to drink anything again. You never get thirsty again. Just drink it once, he says. He calls it living water. It's like magic water. And the woman takes the bait. She's like, I'll do anything to not have to come back to this well again. And then Jesus tells her to bring her husband. And that's where I'm going to pick up reading. This is in verse 17. It'll be on the screens uh, and your study guides. We'll start in verse 17. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people of the city, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. Many Samaritans from that day believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told her everything. He told me everything that I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. This story tells us now why the woman didn't go draw her water in the morning with the other women as they shared the talk of the town and the gossip. She was the talk of the town and the gossip. Five husbands shacking up with a sixth. She was the one people talked about. She was the rumor. So she's not going to go expose herself to that kind of abuse. She's going to wait And even if it means coming out in the middle of the day in the hot, scorching desert sun, she's going to avoid that encounter with those people. She is a walking scandal. That's why she says, I'll take anything that means I don't have to come back to this well. If I could just disappear, Jesus, I would do it. Have you ever been there? If I could just not be seen by anyone for a long, long time, I'll do it, whatever it takes. Give me some of that water, Jesus. And that's why she says, what she says. That's why she's at the well at this time. But then look what happens. Look what Jesus does. You longtime Christians, I want you to hear this because we Christians want to be polite. We want to be nice. We want everyone to feel better about themselves. But look what Jesus does. He doesn't just want her to feel better about herself. She, he is brutally honest with her about her past. Now, I don't need y'all to go out and throw everybody's past in their face. You're not Jesus, and you don't need to even get into this unless you know someone as intimately as Jesus knew this woman, because he was there when she was made, right? So, So don't just get out there and tell everybody what they've done wrong. I'm saying, though, that it wasn't Jesus's priority to sweep her past under the rug and act like none of it ever happened and act like she had never done anything wrong and shield her from whatever guilt and shame 
that she's carrying around because Jesus knows this universal truth that the power your past holds over you is only powerful as long as you don't own your past, as long as you don't acknowledge your role in the mistakes that you've made and repent of it and turn around. It's only until then that your past has any power over you. When Jesus confronts the woman with her past and she owns her past for the first time, it's only then that she's empowered and emboldened to go out into the city among the same people that have been just thrashing her and gossiping about her and calling her names for years. She goes to those same people and she preaches to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they convert She becomes the first woman preacher. Make no mistake, she preaches. And the whole town converts because of her ministry. You know how many people converted in my first sermon? It was awful. It was terrible. They only converted to like from like active energy to potential energy or whatever that is. Like they just just sunk down into their pews. This woman, even in her the shame of her past. She preaches and, and they respond. Why? Because her past held no power over her anymore. Because Jesus confronted her with it. She accepted it. And she was emboldened to go live a different life and become a different person. I visited that town. It still exists. It's called Shechem. And it is one of the last remaining Christian towns in the Holy Land, unfortunately. Arab Christians are being pushed out of the Holy Land every day or persecuted or killed by all the political drama happening there. Pray for your Arab Christian brothers and sisters. It is not a great situation. But in that town, they're holding steady. And there is a church in that town, one of the oldest churches left, in, one of the oldest churches left standing in the, in the world. And it stands about a mile from Jacob's Well, which also still exists, which I drank the water out of Jacob's Well. It was amazing. And then I went to this church, and there is a shrine outside of this church built in honor of this woman who had five husbands and shacked up with a sixth. We honor her. 2,000 years later, we honor her. No one talks about or remembers the people that were spreading rumors about her. All those other people are forgotten and gone. This woman who had five husbands and shacked up with her six, who had a reputation, who was, who was maligned and, and accused of all kinds of things, we honor her today. There is a shrine built in her honor. Because that's what our Jesus does. He takes scandal and he makes it into something honorable. Nobody knows this about the Christian God because we're afraid to tell them. The truth is that our God is completely crazy. And I don't mean that in a sentimental way, like God is crazy for you. He's crazy for you. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God's crazy. Like God's crazy, y'all. By any human standard, God's off his rocker. Like the decisions he makes and the ways he chooses to redeem us, the people that he chooses to use, by any human measure would be certifiable, would be insane. Anyone who runs towards scandal like our God does, anyone who takes the world's worst messes and turns them around for good, anyone who takes you at your worst, the worst problem you've ever created, the worst decisions you've ever made, and turned you around for good, it's not normal. That's not respectable behavior. 
But we like to domesticate God. We like to control God. We religious people enjoy boxing God in. Our God will not be controlled. Our God will take the worst part of you and redeem it. So this is what I, I want you to see. This is where it gets a little bit personal because you have a part to play in this. Um, because just like Jesus confronted that woman with her past, he confronts you with yours. He confronts me with mine. So what I want to tell you is that if you are ever going to overcome the consequences of your past, you're going to have to own your past. You're going to have to own your past. Now, there's no real way to get around this. I wish there was. But I'm saying that your past will never stop haunting you until you own it. What that means is just admitting your mistakes, admitting your role in the things that have gone wrong in your life, admitting that, yeah, some people have treated you wrong. Some people might have done wrong things to you, but you had a part in it. And it means not blaming anyone else any longer, not pointing any more fingers anymore at other people. We've all got people that we could blame for our problems, right? I hear it all the time. You know, um, yeah, my dad mistreated me, so I, I'm inclined to mistreat my kids. It's not my fault. Or, uh, you know, my ex had the affair. It's not my fault our marriage fell apart. Or... Um, it's not my fault I'm failing that class. That teacher hates me. She has it in for me. Yeah, everyone else in class is passing, but it's not my fault <clears throat> that she hates me and I'm failing. Um, you know, it's, it's not my fault. You know, uh, this is one of my, my, I hesitated to share this, but, you know, it's not my fault. I don't have any money saved up. No one saw the economy crashing this way. It's not my fault. I didn't save money when the economy was good. No one saw it happening this way in Houston so fast? I just, I, don't, I want to be as delicate as possible as I close this sermon because I love y'all, and I really, really want y'all to come back to church next Sunday. Um, and so I, I just want to help you see something real quick because I had to come to this realization too, and everyone does if we're really going to turn this thing around. I want you to try to make a mental list real quick of all the worst things that have happened to you, the worst problems you've created, the worst problems you've inherited, all the bad stuff. And then as you make that list, I want you to ask yourself, what does everything on that list have in common? What's the one thing that every bad thing in my life has in common? You're not going to like the answer because it's you. Just like I am the same for me. Like you are the only common denominator in all your life's problems. So there might be a common thread going on here. And so that's what it means to own your past, is to own your role in the way things have gone wrong. Yeah, one relationship after the other might have fallen apart. And yeah, that might not be all your, all your fault. But maybe you're continuing to meet and go out with the same people over and over again. You see what I'm saying? So we've all played a role in those kinds of things. And owning your past means... Admitting that. Now, the second part of that is own your past without letting your past own you. And that means that you're going to uh, repent. You're going to admit all these things that have gone wrong and you're rolling it without beating yourself up. You're not going to hang your head down. You're not going to give in to those temptations to, uh, to, to you know, uh, reflect and stay on all the stuff that you did wrong. Hang your head low. Let all of your detractors, your haters come at you and say, you are not who you're trying to be. You are who you were, and we're not going to let you forget who you were. You don't think all the women listed in Jesus' genealogy had haters. 
telling them that they cannot be who they think they are because we know who you were. The woman preaching her first sermon in Samaria had haters telling her that she couldn't be that person, and you will have haters too. You will have detractors too. I'm telling you, Jesus wants you to own your past without being owned by your past. So when Jesus confronts you with your past, as he might be right now, it's not to judge you. It's not to condemn you. It's to redeem you. It's to help remind you that the reason he came into the world the way that he did in the midst of such a mess is to remind you that he can handle your mess. You can trust him with your mess because he's been in the mess before. He was born into the mess. He'll feel right at home in your mess. You can invite him into it. You can talk to him about it. You can tell him about it. You can trust him with it, and he will give you a better future, a future that is brighter than the past that you've lived. He will give you the courage to overcome the consequences of your past. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for never giving up on us. Truly, God, um, we've lost our way at times. Thank you for never leaving us the way you find us. Help us to trust you and be courageous. In Jesus' name, amen.